Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tong. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And boy, the energies this week have been pretty interesting and weird and I'm really pleased to have my guest on the show today, Neil Kramer, who will give us an insight into these discordant energies and the polarities and, and what is happening in the world and how we can actually transcend all of this uh, trials and, and tribulations. So, Neil, welcome to the show. Hello, Peter. Thank you for having me. So, Neil, we first met down on the Seti Ranch when I was down there with George Cavasilis just a few weeks ago, and we had a neat little introduction to each other. And I'm so pleased that you're joining me on the show, and I'm so, I apologize to our listeners for our weird accents. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully everybody can understand what we're talking about. But uh, having had that visit to the, to the ranch, what are your feelings about it? Well, I think it's a great center for sharing spiritual knowledge and for people exchanging narratives, for learning and for um, good sort of energy recharge, basically. I've been very impressed with it. I've been there a few times now. And um, I have a workshop actually coming up this weekend. Oh, that's, that's uh, great timing. Tell us about right it. There. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's I mean, the, the place is, is essentially... Um, a learning center as far as I'm concerned and the kind of conversation and the quality of people who go there is, is very very high I, I was very impressed with it I, I only first went there myself a few months ago and um, fundamentally I think that of course the place is uh, recognized and is renowned for its UFO activity because that area of the Pacific Northwest is is quite high in terms of uh, UFOs and so on, and sightings and experiences and accounts and so on. And yet, um, specifically, the Mount Adams region seems to have an awful lot of activity, and that is just proven night after night, quite frankly. So just on the first night, we saw all kinds of very, very fascinating and curious things. Um, yeah, so it's a great place, great people. Uh, James and the team up there just do a, a fantastic job, and it's just a really, really valuable resource. So, yeah, I love it. What's, um, your, what's your sense of the light phenomena that take place there? Well, it's funny. There's so many different uh, ways to approach that, to look at things physically, to say, what is that in the sky or what is that in the trees? What is this um, kind of aurora-type effect that comes from the mountains sometimes? You and I sat together uh, looking at lights on the mountain um, that were too far away to be anything other than something extraordinary, shall we say, because they were so um, luminous, so powerful Absolutely. That, that it goes beyond pretty much anything that somebody could carry up there. And we were looking at sheer rock face and there's lights coming out of the mountain and floating around. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating place. And I, I just think... Perhaps I can begin to answer that question a little later because that definitely takes us into the grounds of multidimensionality oh, and what, what level of the, of the sort of hologram you're looking at, really. And so what are you doing on the, on, on the work, in the workshop? Well, the workshop is called Walking the Sacred Path, 
And essentially, it's a sort of weekend experiential workshop. So there's a lot of sharing of knowledge. Uh, there's some, obviously, seminars from myself. There's some group participation. The main idea of it is to share and understand and transmit what I call the inner work, which is really a process of kind of mental purification, of psychic charge, of spiritual philosophy, and of gnosis. So it's my particular fusion of those things and this kind of unfoldment that is taking place in people's lives, how we can sort of synthesize that and put it into some sort of workable, understandable, effective um, process, like a spiritual practice. So really that's what it's about. It's about discovery and it's about the discipline of focus and about the sort of fascination of all the things that that brings to being when you do start to shift your consciousness from a purely three-dimensional level to a slightly higher one, all the things that become possible and all the different rules that start to bend a little bit. So that's what the workshop's about. There's many, many fascinating things involved in that. Bending the rules, I like that. <laughs> so if anybody wants to go, how do they make contact? How do they connect? The best, what, best thing and easiest thing to do, if you go to neilkramer.com, and um, you'll see on the right-hand side, there's like a little um, graphic that says Neil Kramer, Walking the Sacred Path Workshop. Click on that. It'll take you to a PDF with all the details on. You can, you know, contact um, the organizers from there, and it's, it's all very straightforward. Great. Thank you. And uh, also on that journey down with George Cavasilis to, to the Assetti Ranch when we were driving together, he told me in the car that this guy, Neil Kramer, who I didn't yet know, this guy, Neil Kramer, explains the mind control matrix better than anybody that I know. <laughs> so that's why you're on the show. No, no, not at all. But just, just tell us a bit about that. Well, that's very kind of George, first <laughs> of all. I'm, I must send him that money in the post. <laughs> no, it's, um, I think everybody brings something to the table in terms of what skills they have and what uniqueness they resonate in, what, in who they are, essentially. And for me, my journey uh, began quite early. And I think a lot of people who uh, do that start from a position of um, analysis and of philosophy and of scrutiny. And being a Virgo, I have this meticulous impulse sometimes, which is not always my best friend. But in terms of writing and analysis, it can certainly be handy because it gives me some sort of degree of penetration when I'm looking at a particular issue. Uh, I can get to the, to the heart of it quite quickly. And in my journey, in my knowing, in my practice, it became obvious to me very early on that the kind of blanket ignorance in the general public, in the mainstream population, was unnatural. And if somebody is sensitive and is philosophically inclined and is spiritually attuned, it's a very strange thing to look around and wonder why it is that nobody's really interested in life, why nobody's really wanting to look under the surface and get to what is real and get to where the origins of things are and what that means. Nobody's really interested in that. It's a very peculiar realization. And I saw that very early um, in my teens, really. But rather than become indignant or disappointed or disgruntled about it, 
the first idea was, well, why is that? Why are so many people kind of choosing to be asleep? And that's a, something that differentiates me from other people who comment on these subjects in that I don't think they're just asleep because they don't know. My feeling is that people choose to slumber. They choose to put their consciousness into a, a very low gear. And my realization was that it's a very much a protective mechanism that people do um, when they're not sure if they're capable of dealing with ultimate reality, with the world as it really is. And in that sense, it's kind of like a kind of psychic hibernation where people say, look, I don't want to talk about weird stuff. I'm, I'm not really interested in phenomena. I'm not really interested in supernatural elements. I'm not interested in transcendence and the unknown and the mysterious because I am in psychic hibernation as a, as a protective mechanism. And what I discovered was that that process is quite natural. And all of us do it from time to time, uh, sometimes in, throughout the day, sometimes throughout the month or the years or whatever. But it's something we come in and out of quite naturally. What I found was that that process can be sort of artificially stimulated and prolonged. And when that happens, it's effectively putting people not just into a slumber, but into a coma, effectively. And that is not a natural process. It's a very synthetic process. And it's part of a technique and a device that I call the construct, which is um, an imitation of reality that is given to people from a very early age. And it looks and feels and smells like reality, but it isn't. It's, it's just a fabricated version of it that is designed to keep one's awareness really at a very low vibration. So that, that's where I come from, and we can explore that in, in detail if you wish, but that's, that's the outline of it, that there is this thing which I call the construct, which is a synthetic um, entity, and it masquerades as the real world but when you really scrutinize it and when you go forward into it with a complete authentic heart and with conscious will it starts to fall apart and you realize that it isn't actually real but it's so proliferated it's been so widely accepted and there's such official consensus from the majority of people walking around on this planet that to say that and to think that and to believe that sounds crazy. So it's something that one has to approach quite sensitively, but more and more people are coming to that conclusion all of their own accord, quite frankly. Yeah, and Neil, that's, and that's great. And I don't really want to spend the whole show on this because we could easily, I know. So why don't you just give us a little bit of a, perhaps an example of, uh, of, of one of the ways that this, this uh, natural slumber gets taken into a coma? Well, the, the basic thing is that human beings are tuned naturally to interact with the real world at, at a number of levels. Obviously, as animals, we also have a flesh and blood and bone element to us, which would be a mistake to ignore. A lot of people in the spiritual community tend to overlook that, but it's part of our training and it's part of our discovery to be an animal, to be a flesh and blood entity. Um, and that's, that's a significant aspect to our being. But there is another one, 
which is what you might call the higher dimensional aspect or the fourth dimensional aspect to us, which isn't bound by cause and effect and physicality in the same way that our body is. And so I would say that our mind, for example, is not just epiphenomenal to the brain. It's not just like a conscious kind of byproduct. It is actually what I would refer to as a trans-dimensional object in that it exists in the 4D, but it can be felt in the 3D through our consciousness, through our felt experience of daily life. Now, when that is subverted, that flow of consciousness from the 4D and is contained only in the 3D, then people's lives kind of collapse down from the magical wonder it is to be a human being. And it becomes a very prosaic and a very dull existence, very repetitive. And when everybody's saying it, like the astronauts and the movie stars and the doctors and the business people and mothers and fathers, when everybody agrees with that, that consciousness really is just for the body and it's just for gathering resources and procreating, then in many ways we also agree to it because that weight of consensus is very, very difficult to pull away from. And repetition is a very important part of that. So as we all know from the age of sort of zero to seven, you're taught by repetition. And so this construct this containment of consciousness only on a 3D level is conditioned into everybody, particularly in the West, in Europe and America and Canada and so on, is conditioned into everybody from a very early age. So part of my work is to show how that happens, to show that it's not a natural process and to give some um, techniques and strategies to begin to detach and decondition from that so you can actually contact reality in a very, very pure and sincere way with no filters that are false, basically. So life becomes kind of more magical again, more vivid and more real. Well, Neil, that's, that's phenomenal. And, and we're actually almost coming up to our first break in a second, but it's just amazing how the synchronicity is happening. So tomorrow is uh, what's called Michaelmas Day, which is the day that we celebrate Archangel Michael. And what you're actually talking about is the struggle between Michael and the dragon in terms of the, the, the confinement to uh, the third dimensional realm and going beyond that to the spiritual realm. And as you say, it's about finding balance. It's not about one or the other. It's, it's marrying, marrying the two together, which again connects into the Libra energy that we're also just... just it is. It is. It, it's a recognition that we're multidimensional. And it's a funny thing for people to think about that. How can we be in two spaces or at two densities at the same time? But we are. We're fundamentally multidimensional. And that is so quickly forgotten. And that kind of spiritual amnesia can last for days, weeks, months, years, a whole lifetime. And so to, to wake people up from that, you first need to persuade them that they need to take that decision for themselves because life in purely trapped in the 3D is not really normal. It's not really natural. So we have to sort of upturn that whole paradigm, really. So, Neil, we're coming up to our first break, and I'm going to continue this discussion, and I'm really glad you've got some techniques and strategies to help us through this. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. 
Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenterJourney.com for more information. The new home for visionary positive change. 7th Wave Network. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. just want to remind you of my own website, www.petertung.com. Uh, lots of great information there, and my newsletter for October will be coming out at the end of this week. Uh, a couple of big articles on the energies of September and moving into October, and also a Virgo workshop, which was absolutely phenomenal. And I'm quite amused to hear Neil speaking at the beginning about those Virgo tendencies, which we now know all about. <laughs> and uh, also the Ambassadors of Light class tomorrow um, through myheartcenteredjourney.com. And I'll be talking there actually about the energies of Archangel Michael and the dragon and what that really is all about, uh, as well as involving the energies of Libra and how we actually find the balance point that actually Neil is talking about in his talk today. So, Neil, I know from my own experience with people who actually do begin that awakening journey and begin to realize um, the 3D trap, one of the biggest issues that people seem to face instantaneously, immediately, is the loss of, of material security and, and basically no money. Um, I mean, when I gave up my job as the school principal, I went from total security, material security, to absolutely nothing. So just talk to a little bit about how that fits into this puzzle. The universe supports human beings in their unfoldment absolutely and 100%. And that is a reciprocal process. And so to receive support, you actually have to give something of your own consciousness back. And that cycle works beautifully when one is aligned with one's actual path. If somebody, let us say, comes to their process of awakening midway through life, and they have children and wives and jobs and mortgages and pensions and insurance and goodness knows what, all those things, all the, all the accoutrements of, um, of a so-called normal life, then you can pretty much guarantee that along with those things came quite a heavy amount of conditioning from the construct that we mentioned earlier. And the construct has various lines of code in it, shall we say, a bit like a computer application. And one of those lines of code is always make sure that you plan for the future by hoarding. Okay? Yeah. Now, the universe doesn't require anybody 
necessarily to hoard in the way that we might think. Of course, some animals might scurry around and collect a few more nuts from so on, and the bears might fatten up a bit for the winter, but that's a natural process. But the idea of ploughing money into your future, so when you hit 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, you can then stop and you've got enough money to live the life that you, the way you want to, is a totally false paradigm. And quite frankly, certainly in Britain and in America now, anybody who's kind of under the age of 30 is going to do very well to get any kind of pension whatsoever at all in their life. And so that physical structure, that economic structure is beginning to fail in that it's not really supportable. And you can look at that in one of two ways. You can think, well, what a terrible thing that is because you know, my grandfather retired at 50 and has had a, a nice chunk of his life with, you know, a decent um, pension and has been able to travel and do things. And my nephew, say, is not going to be able to enjoy those same things. But on the other hand, it is the universe taking back that and saying, look, this planet is an abundant planet. And the way that abundance works is that it relies totally on an exchange of consciousness. And so if you think that consciousness is kind of like a signal that is transmitted and received and amplified and created throughout the natural world, throughout space, throughout the different star systems, throughout every human, every animal, every plant, every rock, then the more connected you are to that ecosystem, to that ecology of consciousness, the more synchronicity and the more support you are afforded now a normal way of life completely ignores that it completely and totally rejects that it discards it as foolishness and as risk unacceptable risk so if you've spent 50 years of your life with that mentality boy does it take some undoing to start to work backwards from that not only to not worry about it because we're not just talking about ignoring the realities and the responsibilities that we all have but we're talking about creating that connection with the natural world around us because when we become conscious at a high level which is the normal human path left to our own devices then the universe can see us it can actually see us and think, aha, there is a conscious, connected entity who is going about their growth and their unfoldment and their discovery and who's on their journey. And now I can help them. But it cannot see people who are not conscious. So that lies at the heart of this mystery of how do we resource ourselves when we tread on the spiritual path. We have to do it through knowing that consciousness is the key to bring in those synchronous events, to get in the particular type of resources you need, that happens totally in a two-way fashion. It's not just luck. It's not about getting your special book published. It's not about getting that dream job on that special organic farm somewhere. It's about whatever it is for you, and that changes for everybody. But the key thing is your ability to give in terms of your conscious growth, because that's what the universe wants. So you're now moving actually into uh, the the other side of this equation, which is actually moving through this uh, projection, this this um, control mechanism, 
in moving into your own awakening process. Yes, it is. It, the physical world begins to diminish um, in accordance and very tightly correlated to the disavowal of our work, of our inner work, of our discovery. And I noticed that the title of the show is Dissolving the Shadow. And the shadow can be likened to Carl Jung's model of uh, the psyche, whereby what we disregard and what we reject becomes our own shadow. And so if there's a part of ourselves that we don't like, our jealousy or our anger or our submissiveness or our anger or whatever it might be, that over time, the further you reject it, the deeper and denser that shadow becomes. Now, I've kind of taken that idea on. I've, I've picked that up, looked at it and thought, this is really interesting. And over time, I have developed that in my own way, whereby the shadow actually isn't just an aspect of mind and isn't just a collective metaphorical or theoretical projection of human consciousness. It's actually a physical thing. And when one disavows one's inner work and one's conscious unfoldment repeatedly, chronically, every time the universe kind of won't let you get away with that. It says, look, you're here for one reason. You're here for discovery. And that discovery infers unfoldment and infers growth and infers risk. And if you reject that discovery, then you begin to create external negative entities that aren't just mental projections. They become actual things, actual concrete things in the world. So a lot of those toxic cultural paradigms that we talk about, a lot of those broken systems in the world and this ridiculous fake democracy that masquerades as um, administration by the people for the people, which of course we all know is, is ludicrous and is on a good day is laughable and on a bad day is, is horrible. But the reason those things exist is because billions of human beings have decided not to make contact with their own discovery, have decided not to live authentically. And so it's a teaching mechanism to say, okay, guys, well, if you want to do that, this is what happens to the physical world. It becomes unpleasant. It becomes darker. And those shadows, far from being just reflections of the mind, actually take on form and they become people and events and things and emotions, real things. And so it's, it's actually a gift wrapped up in a crisis, really, to say, okay, well, things are bad because so many people are deciding to stay asleep. So some people who that hasn't happened to, who have awakened, they have a responsibility not to wake other people up because that can only ever be done by oneself, but to make the resources available and the growth available for oneself first and foremost, but also as a support network for the increasing number of people who want to understand what this process is about, who have a notion of what sacred wisdom is, of what philosophy is, of what spirituality is, of what mysticism is, but don't really know where to begin or what to trust or what to have faith in. So those of us who do have some sort of blessing in terms of our insight or our skills or our experiences. We do have an obligation to share that to some extent. And that is why I 
share what I'm doing because for a long time I thought, well, why, why bother? I'll just continue on my own journey. But it became obvious to me that other people do want to hear this and want to share it. So it's very important that we do that. Absolutely. That's, sort of, that was, that's what we're both involved in doing, isn't it? Which is, which is fantastic. So in terms of dissolving the shadow, um, how do individuals go about that? Well, the, the first thing is a realization. Everything begins with a realization. The way we approach dissolution of that shadow is we have to pull ourselves first and foremost away from the material world, however wonderful or rubbish that might be for one person in their life. Some people have exciting, glamorous lifestyles, or so, we, so we're told on television. And other people have very mundane and dreary, grim lives. And what spiritual philosophy does is it permits us to rise above the map, the sort of um, route map or route map of our own life and take a broader view. And it's a gateway to experiences of insight and of meaning and of truth and of adventure. And for many people, it calibrates the mind for contact with something of a higher order than normal human consciousness. And when we do this, when we take the philosophical view and rise up from the map of our own life and say, well, hang on a second, I know I've got to do X, Y, and Z, but just for a moment, let me rise up and let me take a broader view and let me see a little bit further around the corner and over the valley and behind the mountain and next to what's happening there in that village. I can see further, I rise up. When you do that, you begin to realize what affects one's own negativity or one's own disownment has on yourself and on the events and circumstances of your life. And the chief realization is that once you realize that you're able to do that, you can then start to own those things and take them back rather than completely trying to propel them from your borders all the time. And, uh, you know, like uh, cannons on the side of a, of, a, of a ship in the old days. You don't. You make contact with them and you go into them. So there's an acknowledgement that darkness out there, the unpleasantness, isn't necessarily separate from us in any real way. It's actually part of us and it emanates from us. So we can recall that back into us and say, okay, darkness, where did you come from? What occurred where I created that darkness and then tried to disown it? What occurred there? And that is a process of looking within, and it is a process of understanding that fundamentally, when you ignore an opportunity for growth, or when you have a negative emotion and you ignore it, that you are creating a darkness, you are creating a void. That void eventually becomes more and more hard and dense and will come and bite you in the backside sooner or later. So when those things start to occur and when you do realize there are shadows in your life that are kind of like creating trouble for you, the thing to do is go right into the center of them, is to go right up to them and to begin to assimilate that back into yourself in a completely open and conscious and powerful but also compassionate way and say, I'm going to own this darkness and I am going to own it for as long as necessary until I can completely diminish it, until I can shine my consciousness into it and it just naturally dissolves. 
Neil, we're um, actually coming up to our, our next break, so sure. I'll give you the chance to finish this off just after we've had this short break. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Listening on a higher dimension. 7th Wave Network. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. just want to remind you of this wonderful opportunity that we've been given to go to Egypt in the second half of February with Finbar Ross and I will be co-leading that tour going to some of the most significant sites in Egypt understanding historically what took place and doing some meditations and insights and connecting to those other realms to help us on our unfolding journey um, if you wish to check that out uh, www.celticmysticaljourneys.com and you can see all the trips that Finbar has organized, and specifically the one in February 2011, sorry, 2012, <laughs> that I will be uh, accompanying him on. And just before the break, uh, Neil, you were talking about really facing up to that shadow side and getting inside it. Just finish that, uh, that piece off. Sure. Fundamentally, what the principle of this is that um, we create our own experiences at root, it doesn't necessarily happen as conscious, three-dimensional human beings, homo sapien entities. It happens at a slightly different level. So we don't always have knowledge, certainly not full knowledge of that process. But most of what we have is kind of pre-ordered, if you like. Most of the circumstances we find ourselves in are pre-ordered. And so when you begin to develop that communication with your higher self, your fifth-dimensional self, shall we say, then you begin to see that and you begin to switch your faith in that process to a knowing in that process. So personally, from my point of view, which is obviously all I can ever really talk from, I can say that I have a knowing that my higher self, which is a bit of a misnomer, but we'll say that because it's hard to talk about otherwise, my higher self is saying, okay, these things are going to give you exactly what you need and try not to push anything away, try not to give in to fear. And in my personal experience, it's meant that I have started to realize that 
most of the sort of unpleasant things that occur, certainly in terms of human behavior being the most extreme examples usually, um, I can begin to observe that without judgment now. And I begin to understand that what society calls evil, when we see those things, what we're actually seeing are the effects of someone who is attempting to mitigate their own pain, the effects of their own pain. And so they push out more pain to displace it. And we all do this a little bit from time to time, but some people get caught in that cycle. And so the most important thing is to understand that you create the pain. And once you realize that something happens, the penny drops and you think, well, hang on a second, if I create the pain, that might be a bit of a surprise. But it means that I can control the pain. I can control the creation of that. And that is where the solution lies. And, you know, it's a, it's two days training to go into that. But that's the principle of it for the purposes of this conversation. Absolutely. And how does the, um, the flow of the masculine and feminine energies come into this? Well, masculine and feminine is a very physical representation of the teaching mechanism that this world uses, which is polarity, essentially. And I think that at a very fundamental level, you could say that when the world came into existence, the three-dimensional world, there was a decision, an intelligence, there was a divinity that decided that polarity is, is a damn good way of getting things to move along, is a really effective method of getting things to create themselves in such a way that there's never any stagnation and that those things can continually create new forms and can continually unfold in a manner that is going to bring evolution, if you can imagine it in that way. So my understanding, and this goes back to many traditions, of course, is that this solar lunar principle, uh, this male-female principle, this penis-vagina principle, in the very intimate sense, in terms of sexuality and one's experience with love and with creation and procreation, and in a very galactic sense, in terms of creation and destruction and black holes and white holes and suns and moons and so on, it brings us to the realization that a lot of the um, hermetic sages um, realized, which is that not only do those two things represent each other, not only is there a representation, but as was recorded in the so-called Emerald Tablet by Hermes Trismegistus, that they're actually completely and totally part of each other. They don't symbolize each other, they are part of each other. And so it's not just about archetypes, it's not just about roles that we attribute certain characteristics to with certain energies they are actually part of the same thing so the secret of a lot of the alchemical um, conscious movements certainly in the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe was that the alchemist would realize that in order to bring about um, majestic and pure and beneficial transformations in the world completely relied on the alchemist's willingness to transform their own consciousness. Because when you do realize that you are connected intimately to the sun, 
when that energy begins to flow through you, it changes your consciousness forever. And it's a one-way process. And most people are a bit unsure of that, and so they never quite do it. They keep it as a symbolic relationship. But it's actually a very physical one, and it's a very literal one. And then, again, we start to realize that our own lives are absolute literal representations. The circumstances of our lives are literal representations of what is in our mind. And you start to blur the boundaries, just like the Hindu spiritual philosophers did many centuries ago. You start to blur the boundaries between what is you and what is not you. And the further you look into that, the further you contemplate that idea, the truer it becomes that there is no necessary distinction between the two. And it's very easy to say we're all one and there's this oneness and everybody dances about saying that. <laughs> very few people realize the implications of that and what that means. Because what it means, amongst other things, is that everything you do has a profound effect on everything around you. Not just your friends and family, not just the people in your immediate environment, but the whole ecosystem of conscious entities in this universe, which is vast and hugely cohesive. So it's a little bit like putting something on the internet that is very, very juicy. Within a very small amount of time, millions and millions and millions of people can share in that. You know, just like a, an interesting video on YouTube that sort of tickles the imagination, tickles the fancy. Suddenly, like, 50 million people have watched it. It's the same thing as that, because our connectedness is so deep, far deeper, far truer than any silicon-based communication could ever be. Because it happens in a fourth-dimensional space, then what we do has a massive effect on everything around us. And that's where responsibility comes into this. So not only a willingness to transform, but you cannot move into a higher dimensional consciousness. You cannot increase the frequency of your consciousness, just like electromagnetic frequencies increase. You can't do that without the responsibility of understanding what your actions are. So there is necessarily a, a kind of threshold an initiatory gateway that the universe puts in place to say, we can't just have any Tom, Dick and Harry doing this. <laughs> it's got to be someone who is disciplined, who is focused, and who understands the implications of it. And that's a life's work, many lives work. So it's something that we approach um, as you would approach a sacred building. You approach it with a certain amount of reverence, <clears throat> but also a certain amount of excitement as well. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful explanation. And you've mentioned different uh, dimensions as we've gotten along, so I do want to give you the chance to talk about the different dimensions because, again, people have difficulty understanding typically uh, what, what different dimensions really represent. So I know that you have a seven-dimensional model. Could you begin talking about that? Yeah, sure. Um, of course, in the Victorian era, um, a lot of people made contact with mysticism for the first time because of um, reading and literacy and so on from the Industrial Revolution onwards, which spread from Britain to Europe, to America, to Asia and the rest of the world. Along with that Industrial Revolution came literacy. So before the 18th century, very, very few people could read or write. So we have a problem there because it means that a lot of our sacred knowledge was in the hands of an extraordinary minority of people. And they were usually clerics, usually priests, Catholics, um, Muslims, Christians, Jews, whatever. And 
when you start to trace the origins of that back, you realise this is this is a kind of um, sideways answer to your question, but I'll, I will answer that question strongly. <laughs> you start to realise when you look at that that despite the artifice of Christianity and Catholicism and Judaism as the sort of um, um, chief Western religions, and of course uh, the Muslim traditions in um, in the Middle East and so on, you realise when you trace those back that when you push through all the kind of guff and all the nonsense and all the dogma and all the doctrine, there is actually something really important in a lot of those religions. But they, they themselves, in my view, have become disconnected from it. You push back to about 500 BC to the Alexandrian schools, then you push a little further back to 300 BC to Greece, to some of the um, Hebrew traditions of that time as well. And when you push further back, a lot of these things come from Egypt and then slightly before them from Sumer. And of course, people may realize that the modern location of ancient Sumer of the Sumerian culture is Iraq, essentially. And so a lot of our knowledge about the realms and the dimensions and the densities, the earliest written tracings of that directly affecting Christianity, for example, come from Iraq around 3,500 BC, maybe earlier, I'm being conservative there, maybe 4,500 BC. And they were talking about dimensions and realms and their gods, Anu and Enki and the Egyptian Thoth and also Hermes, um, who is said to have instructed Abraham, for example, who was the forefather of all the Abrahamic religions, naturally, talked of these worlds, talked of these realms, of these spheres of existence, and they were mapped out to be nine or twelve or five or six or seven. And I basically say, well, we don't know really until you ascend through them and we map them ourselves, but let us say that there are seven. Cause that so, Neil, us- I'm just going to hold you right there because we're up at our last break and it's a perfect okay. time to break just before you begin the explanation. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenterJourney.com for more information. Be extraordinary. 7th Wave Network. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. 
Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Having an absolutely wonderful and powerful uh, talk today with uh, Neil Kramer, who's given us an explanation of life, essentially. And he's just about to, to go into the seven-dimensional realms. But before you do, Neil, just remind us of your website so people can connect with you after the show. Sure. Uh, my website is neilkramer.com, and essentially all my work is accessible from there. And that's N E I. L-K-R-A-M-E-R dot com. Yeah. Great. Okay, back to the seven dimensions. Okay. So, yes, we were talking just before the break of the, the origins of uh, this knowledge, and I was drawing people's attention to the, to the fact, which is pretty kind of indisputable, really, that a lot of the um, religions that we have today uh, stem from a single source, in my view. And you can go back before Sumer to um, ancient indigenous shamanic European people and say, well, where did they get that from? And there's this lineage, there's this, there's this knowledge. And my view has always been, and I'm discussing this in my forthcoming book, which is out in the spring, but my view has always been that there is one sacred knowledge. There is one system and set of tools and strategies and observations and truths that describe the mechanics of this universe and of this process in a very transcendent way and in a very multidimensional way. So you, it, you cannot really rely on any modern religious tradition or spiritual tradition. You have to go back to understand its heritage. And when you do, you realize that a fundamental part of that observation from those early traditions is the idea that there are a number of nested dimensions, we would call them nowadays. In the old tongue, they would call them spheres or realms or planes or astral levels and all these different words. And those words usually sort of resonate with the cultural expectations and the linguistics and the syntax and so on of the time. Nowadays, we're so accustomed to these things in, in the circles that you and I and your listeners move in that we would call them dimensions, okay? So that's one way of thinking about it. Physically, you might think of it as a dimension, a space in which one might move. In terms of energy, you might think of it as a density. Um, in terms of the density of consciousness, the vibration of that consciousness. So a first density consciousness, for example, might be a plant or a rock or an element, a piece of iron under the ground or a piece of copper or something. Um, a second density consciousness might be an animal. And a third density consciousness, of course, would be typically human beings. And that represents a state of awareness. And it's not necessarily better than a rock or a mountain lion, our consciousness. It's just different. It's a different oscillation. It's a different frequency. And the natural movement is to fully map each dimensional space and each density and continue on our journey from the first through the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth to the seventh. And as we go, certain things have to happen before you cross the threshold to the next dimensional space. So one of the key lessons of the third density consciousness is um, conscience, to use the Victorian language, or in modern day language, integrity. And one's integrity and one's 
ability to be impeccable in one's dealings with the world and oneself, that has to come to a very high level before consciousness goes to a 4D space. Now, it, it can happen that certain entities go into that space not having fully mapped that, and that's therefore where they stay. So some people, in my view, people, not the right word, some intelligences scrape through, cheat on the exams and <laughs> scrape through into the 4D space. And we might call them um, some of the negative extraterrestrial entities, to use that terminology, for example. And to say extraterrestrial, you immediately create this dichotomy of humans and aliens. But I see it as the, such an extraordinary diversity of life it's rather like if dogs could uh, rule the world and they would say, well, is it dog or is it not dog? And that would like completely ignore all the billions of different species that are out there and the different types of consciousness. It's the same for us. So there are like Atlantean and mythological nature spirits, greys, Orions, Arcturans, Draconians, all these different things that operate in a fourth dimensional density. When you go up from that, you... You cannot increase that unless you are basically operating from what, again, in modern terms, we would call a heart center, where there is a implicit understanding that we have to operate not only in service to self, but also in service to others. And that's a very smooth dynamic. So in the fifth dimensional space, you get like the Pleiadian entities, for example, who are advanced in terms of the time they've spent going through these grades, these schools, these universities of consciousness, and have achieved such a fineness and such a delicate equilibrium in what they're doing that they are given creational abilities. So the 5D is where you first encounter creational power in that you can create from nothing. You don't just transform energy from one form into another, which is a 3D paradigm. From the 5D, you can create. Now, when we go to the 6th and the 7th, we're moving into such uncharted territory of the 6th being pure light beings, the 7th being celestial creative beings, that it's difficult to talk about, quite frankly. Even to go to the 5D is an extraordinary feat for any three-dimensional human mind to do while they're here. What we're concerned with is the relationship between the 3D and the 4D. So as spiritual people, that's what we're looking at. And that is what is happening at a global scale at the moment, that those who are purely invested in the 3D are in for some trouble because the Earth itself, the galaxy itself, is shifting into a higher oscillation of consciousness. And everybody moves up one level. So the animals will become given the opportunity to become human, if you like, or given the opportunity for homo sapien-like humanoid consciousness, humans are given the opportunity to shift, to go to a higher dimensional space physically and a higher density of consciousness at an energetic level. And that shift happens every 24, 25,000 years. And we're just, as everybody is probably quite aware on the edge of one of those cycles now. And it is actually happening right now if you know how to look and if you know how to see. And that is something that affects everybody all the time. But those invested totally in the concrete material world of objects and tables and chairs, they can't see it because their consciousness is, is operating at a very low level. It's vibrating at a very low level. And that's okay, but it will mean they will not have the opportunity to shift 
and they will be kind of like uh, recycled, to put it <laughs> in a slightly humorous way. So consciousness can never be destroyed. Everybody's safe in the end. It's just a, a matter of how willfully and how smoothly and elegantly we move on our journey. Nobody really loses out, no one, but some move at different speeds than others. Neil, we're actually at the end of the show, and that's actually a really, really good place to finish because you've summed it up just beautifully in that last uh, last few <laughs> words. And I really appreciate your time today. You've done a wonderful job in one hour of explaining a great deal of the mystery, and I really, really appreciate your time today. So thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I hope the listeners enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure they have. Lots to ponder and think about. Thanks so much. You're welcome. So my guest next week is Scott Onstott, who's been talking about secrets in plain sight. And many of the structures that uh, we were really talking about today with Neil behind the scenes and how they have been used both positively and negatively to keep us trapped and provide the opportunity to awaken to our consciousness. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. Have a great week. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring please join host peter tong for another edition of awakening to conscious creation next wednesday at 3 p.m eastern time noon pacific time on seventh wave network